Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. The FT. Hello, you're listening to World Weekly with me, Gideon Rachman. This week, I talk to America's Assistant Secretary of State for Europe, Philip Gordon, about US-European cooperation in Afghanistan and over Iran. I actually think one of the defining characteristics of this period is the degree of transatlantic consensus on the big strategic issues of the day. Not always the case. We also take a look at the first elections in 20 years in Burma. Talking to Andy Hine, who's the British ambassador in Rangoon, he said that these elections could have presented a huge opportunity for the Burmese government in Rangoon to try and draw in the ethnic minorities around the country. But unfortunately, it's an opportunity they didn't grasp. But first to the rumpus caused by the president of the World Bank, Robert Zellick, who seemed to come close to calling for a return to the gold standard earlier this week. Joining me to discuss this is Edward Haddas, who's a writer on Lex. Edward, what exactly did Zellick say, and was he calling for a return to the gold standard? He certainly wasn't calling for a return to the gold standard, say what you will. What he was calling for was a more responsible reproach to currencies around the world. And remember, he's a former trade negotiator, and his so his view is trade should be balanced not by currencies but by fundamentals of economics. And he was making a call that's been made before by the Chinese, by the French, for some kind of standardized global reference currency. And then he had a little paragraph that proved incendiary, saying that gold might play a part in setting that value. So the gold bugs went mad and said, oh, well, look, you know, if gold's going to be the standard, then the price has got to be whatever, $10,000 a ton, $200,000 a ton. But really, there wasn't anything like that going on. Now, the gold bugs, as you said, went crazy, and the price jumped for a little while. What about the officials who, who are dealing with what some are calling this global currency war? Did people say, oh, that's a really good idea? Or it seemed to me he got a rather dusty response. Dusty would be polite, ranged from he's irrelevant to he's mad. And it's a kind of admission of failure to say we should pay any attention to gold in two senses. One is that the market's heavily speculative, um, and so the price doesn't bear any relationship to the cost or to really to anything except the whims of Indian consumers and Western speculators largely. And so to say that we should rely on something as speculative as this is a little alarming. But the, the second reason I think is more fundamental is that central banks have spent the last 60 years or so claiming they could run a fiat currency system with based only on the goodwill and trust of central banks. And to even admit that you should actually put some kind of reference into something tangible is basically saying, oh, we have just haven't succeeded over this in this effort. But even if they give a, a dusty response, as we were saying, are they perhaps reflecting a renewed interest in gold from central banks? Because, um, you know, was it a decade ago Britain was selling off its gold and it, now Asian central that, banks seem to be stocking that, up? All the central banks in the world, are, are, the balance was net negative for ages and it seems to be now neutral to positive. That is, there is a little bit of net buying. So the central bankers, while disappointed and 
discouraged and don't want to mention it, they actually seem to be thinking along the same line that gold probably is going to play a role in the future of the world monetary system, certainly not the role it did at the turn of the last century when we had a very explicit link of currencies to gold. But the idea that some hard money aspect to the world currencies seems to be creeping back into favor. I don't know whether you you, uh, mind me putting in the role of tipster, but obviously a lot of readers and people are interested, you know, is the gold price going to keep going up? Is this a reflection of of the continuing boom in gold prices? Well, of course, we made the case in Lex that it's the reverse. If Zolik is right and we can create or Zolik wins his battle for a stable currency and we're able to create something that is anti-currency manipulation, anti-currency debasement, then people will get confidence in the world monetary system and the price of gold will stop rising because there'll be less of a case that gold is the last reserve of value and all currencies go down. So um, it's a bit of a contrafactual. If Zolik is right, then the price of gold shouldn't go up, even though the price of gold went up because Zolik said the price of gold is going to be important. As a tipster, I'd probably bet at least for the next six months that we're going to have a lot more trouble in the currency world um, rather than more peace. So the gold may well have a bit to run. And so last question, I mean, which in, in your response, you bring us back to the fact that the, the context for Zelik's remarks for the surge in the gold price is this huge uncertainty over global currencies, talk of global currency wars. I should emphasize we're talking before the G20 summit. They're about to, to, to meet, but it doesn't look terribly like they're going to come up with any solutions. Where do you see uh, the balance of the debate at the moment? If gold isn't the answer, has anyone else got any better answers? And we're at that very unfortunate and unpleasant time in any kind of global dispute where there is no good answer. The Chinese and the Americans, who basically represent the two poles of this debate, have dug in their positions. They're both persuaded they're right. Neither of them has any particular reason to yield. And so I suspect we'll have this impasse continue for a bit. It's not as bad an impasse as one could fear. Trade continues. Currencies continue to be valued. So right now it is, as they say, a phony war, but it's certainly a very concerning situation. Edward Haddis, thank you very much indeed. Philip Gordon, the US Assistant Secretary of State for Europe, is in London at the moment, and earlier today he came into the FT. I asked him about the perception that under the Obama administration, Europe is playing less of a role in American foreign policy. Uh, No, that's not at all the case. Of course, the president is in Asia. He's very focused on Asia. Asia is hugely important to the United States, as is the Middle East, Afghanistan, Iran. I think the way to think about Europe in this global context is that Europe is our key partner as we face challenges around the world in Asia, Middle East, and elsewhere. We know we need allies. The United States can't tackle what is really a daunting international agenda alone. And when you think about the allies we might find, at the top of your list are the democratic, like-minded, prosperous allies in Europe. Now, in the Bush years, obviously, there was a period when there were very tense relationships between some European powers and the Americans. Things seem to have calmed down now. But are the Europeans delivering the kind of assistance and the kind of global view that the Obama administration initially hoped for, or is they being a bit disappointing? Europeans are delivering on many of the key issues uh, we faced. I've already mentioned Afghanistan, where there's some 40,000 troops from Europe uh, fighting alongside Americans. In Iran, which was once very divisive across the Atlantic, the Europeans on the Security Council supported the latest round of sanctions. In the Middle East, we're pursuing the same policy. In the Balkans, which was once divisive, we're working together. So yes, uh, I actually think one of the defining characteristics of this period 
is the degree of transatlantic consensus on the big strategic issues of the day. Not always the case. But what about NATO? There's a NATO summit later this month. Some people say NATO is now really of declining irrelevance, not really sure what it's for. It's kind of paradoxical to describe NATO as not relevant at a time when it is fighting a critical war. All of the NATO countries have troops in Afghanistan. NATO is still playing a critical role in the Balkans. The countries of NATO who are coming together around a new strategic concept obviously think it's still important to maintain the notion of collective defense and this alliance. This notion of NATO disappearing has been around for a long time, ever since the Cold War ended, and and we keep coming back to it because ultimately it's a place where these democracies who share the same values uh, and interests can come together and more efficiently put their resources together towards the same aims. Now, the original purpose of NATO, obviously, was the containment of Russia. And one of the most interesting foreign policy initiatives of the Obama administration, I think, is this so-called reset with Russia. Can you give us an idea of where you think it is? I mean, has it achieved much? It has. When President Obama came into office, he looked at the relationship with Russia, concluded that it was not being used to its fullest extent. And he said, why don't we find areas in which we can work together while agreeing to disagree about things we disagree on? And we feel that we have made very good progress in the first two years. We've got a new START agreement in the disarmament area. Russians have agreed for lethal transit over Russia. It helps us diversify supply routes in Afghanistan. We have a bilateral presidential commission with working groups in some 16 different areas fostering our relationships. And then most recently, we worked together on Iran. We've worked together on Iran and North, North Korea, including the recent UN Security Council sanctions. And I think that really shows that this more constructive, concrete, pragmatic, even trusting relationship is in our mutual interests. I would note that we've done it all without sacrificing important principles. And we've stood up for sovereignty and territorial integrity in Europe. Uh, we have a disagreement on Georgia, and we haven't been shy about underscoring it. We continue to underscore the importance of human rights and democracy. And so we think it's, uh, it's paying off, and we look forward to continuing to work well with Russia. And yet the first achievement that you list, the START Treaty, it, it hasn't been ratified by, Sen- by the Senate yet. And we have, we've just had these midterm elections in which the Republicans have taken control of the Senate. Do you think you'll actually get it through? And then if you don't, does that mean the whole reset... Is, is in trouble. We think there's a strong case for ratification. We think the treaty is in our mutual interest. It's in the United States' interest. When it came up in the committee in the Senate, it passed by a vote of 14 to 4. Four Republicans voted for it. We hope that the Senate will act favorably on the treaty during the so-called lame duck session uh, this month. If the treaty is not ratified, then we would have no restrictions on strategic nuclear forces, and we would have no verification provisions. So I think Anyone who wants to make the case against the treaty would have to explain why they think we're better off if we have no inspections or verification at all. Finally, Turkey. It's been a relationship that the U.S. has has cultivated over many years, a key NATO ally, and yet it does seem to be in a bit of trouble at the moment. Is is that unfair to to say that you're going through a tense period in relations with Turkey? Turkey is a hugely important country to the United States. We deal with it on a range of issues in the Middle East and Europe and, and globally. And we're working very well with Turkey in a number of areas, counterterrorism, and we strongly support them on the PKK challenge. Uh, We're working together to to try to bring about a representative government in Iraq. Turkey's making a major contribution in Afghanistan. We've also been clear that we've had some differences. We had a difference over the vote on Iran sanctions in the Security Council. We explained uh, why we thought it was necessary to show Iran that there were consequences for not... uh, 
reassuring the international community on its nuclear weapons potential capability. Turkey had a different view. We have had very extensive discussions with the Turks. This is the sort of disagreement that friends and strategic partners can have. Philip Gordon, thank you very much indeed. Our final topic today is the elections in Burma. Burma's just had its first election in 20 years, but it's a controversial one. It comes as little surprise that the party linked to the country's military junta appears to have swept into power, and the result is being strongly contested by some opposition parties who regard the whole process as rigged. Aung San Suu Kyi, Burma's leading pro-democracy campaigner, actually boycotted the poll. Fiona Simon spoke to Tim Johnston, the FT's correspondent in Bangkok, who's been covering the election, and asked him how the opposition parties fared. Well, it rather depends on who you talk to. Uh, the official results said they fared very badly. Less than 10% of the seats went to non-government-affiliated parties. But if you talk to these parties, particularly the big ones, the National Democratic Force, which was a split-off from Mrs. Suu Kyi's party, they said that they actually won in about 90% of the constituencies in which they contested. But they say that the ballots were rigged, essentially. Were there any notable opposition successes? Not many is the answer. We understand that one or two of the ethnically-based parties, particularly in Rakhine, that's the province state to the far west on the border with Bangladesh, they did all right. But again, we have this sort of systematic arrangement that the government party, the USDP, won overwhelmingly across the country. It didn't look like they were allowing any sort of air to come into the system to allow any sort of block that might become a challenge in Parliament to develop. But there will be some opposition representation in Parliament. So does this signal, do you think, some willingness on the part of the military to cede control back to the people? If we take the 80% margin of victory seriously, no, not really. Because on top of that, they have 25% of the seats in all the parliaments. That's the upper and lower national houses and the 14 state and regional parliaments. 25% of those seats go automatically to the army. Plus the 80% that the USDP has won, there's not very much room. However, there is possibly a little bit more room than there was before. I was talking to a number of reservers earlier today, and they were saying it could be awkward for the government. What happens if one of these admittedly very few opposition representatives stands up and asks them what's happening to the gas income for the last four or five years? That's billions of dollars which haven't appeared in the state account that we know have been paid to Burma. So it, there might be a little bit of room, but the Constitution is very vague, and we don't know how much latitude the generals will give to any opposition parties until they actually sit down in Parliament, and that will be another three, four months away. What do you think the military junta's motive was for holding the poll in the first place? It's very unclear. Partially, I think, they were worried about sanctions. They wanted the veneer of some sort of democratic process. I think also China is getting rather bored of defending the generals in the UN and other international fora. I think there are some generals within the army who genuinely believe that this sort of arrangement where they dominate the country, where they're taking many of the assets and putting the money into their own pocket is wrong. One thing I'm pretty sure of, it wasn't sanctions. Sanctions hasn't really hit the country and certainly hasn't hit the leadership. But I think there are internal pressures. China, of course, is one of the few countries that's welcomed the poll. It values its ties partly because of Burma's natural gas reserves. But the planned pipelines to carry gas into southern China have to go through territory 
controlled by ethnic groups. Is it part of the government's plan the poll will help to pacify some of these groups? The ethnic position in, in Burma is very, very difficult. International interest has been focused very closely on Aung San Suu Kyi, on the opposition leader. She spent 15 of the last 20 years in prison. But alongside that scene of confrontation, the ethnic division within the country, 40% of the country is ethnic minorities, and that is going to be a much, much more difficult equation to square. The ethnic problem is becoming more and more pressing because, as you say, this pipeline that runs from down on the Bangladesh-Burma border all the way up through to Kunming, to Yunnan in southern China, that is going to run through areas controlled by these ethnic militias. The Chinese who are paying for much of this are not going to be terribly happy with the idea that this ethnic militia could hold the power supplies to its southern provinces to ransom. Talking to Andy Hine, who's the British ambassador in Rangoon, he said that these elections could have presented a huge opportunity for the Burmese government in Rangoon to try and draw in the ethnic uh, minorities around the country. But unfortunately, it's an opportunity they didn't grasp. And many people looking at the situation now fear that the army, the Tatmadaw, will go in and try and clear these groups out. And that could lead to huge bloodshed. What of Suu Kyi? Has her stance on the poll been vindicated, do you think? I'm not sure it's been vindicated or dismissed. She made a very principled decision that she wouldn't stand. Other people said it was the only opportunity that they had to try and change the country. They will, of course, be disappointed by this result. But I think Suu Kyi's principled stand will stand as a beacon for many people who want democracy in the country. And she has come out of this unsullied. And when she is released, we hope on Saturday, it will make a huge difference, the fact that she has stuck to her guns. That was Tim Johnston in Bangkok talking to Fiona Simon. And that's it for this week. Thank you to Edward Haddis in the studio, to Tim Johnston in Bangkok and to Philip Gordon. World Weekly was produced by LJ Filatrani. Till next week, goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc., 